you would all please open and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 36. As was already stated, this is our last sermon series, our sermon in Genesis, at least for quite some time, as we are finishing this middle section of our journey with the patriarchs. I really think there's much that when we turn to a passage like Genesis 36, you probably do one of two things in your annual reading plan. You skip over it, or you skim it, or the second thing being it confuses you and brings about questions of why God would put a genealogy, something like this. Uh, often commentators would call that a batoldot from the Hebrew. We see ten of these or so from the book of Genesis. I would encourage you as we are here that you would remember this is God's word. It is for God's people. It is absolutely true. It's inspired and errant and breathed out by him. So to that end, as we go to this list of genealogy and of that of the other family line, consider what it is that he has for his people as we learn these lessons from the wrong family line. The subtitle is our sermon today. Without further ado, let's read from Genesis 36. This is the word of our God. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholimabah, the daughter of Enah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau, Elipaz, Basemoth bore Ruel, and Oholimabah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir, or Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Edah, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Emelech to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shemah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ohilabamah, the daughter of Anah, the son of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chief of the sons of Esau, the sons of Elipaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chief Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Emelech. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz to the land of Edom. In the land of Edom, these are the sons of Edah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons. The chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shemah, and Mezah, these are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. 
These are the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ohilamabah, Esau's wife, the chief, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Ohilamabah, the daughters of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anah, Deshan, Ezer, and Deshan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Haman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shabal, Alvin, Manathah, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ea, and Anna. He is the Anna, Anna who founded the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Oholimabah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdon, Ishvan, Ithron, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Latan, Shabal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Ser. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinabah. Bela died, and Joab, the son of Zerah of, Bazar, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hashem of the land of the Timonites reigned in his place. Hashem died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Simlah of Mazrekah reigned in his place. Simlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabul, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jethleth, Olimba, Alan, Kenon, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling place in the land of their possession. I'll read 37.1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings and the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. The word of our God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage as we come to this passage, as I stumble through names, and as we stumble through what it is that you would have for us, Father, we ask that we would see you. We ask that your word would be preached with power and that you would proclaim what it is that you desire for your people. 
Would you get me, your humble servant, out of the way and let your people hear from you this morning? It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, that I pray. Amen. So, you made it through all of that genealogy and me stumbling through name after name. I hope that was encouraging in some ways to hear your pastor stumble through names as well. As I've read through this list, I can't tell you how many times with some of the things in my world and my life that makes a passage like this a bit difficult, one of them being reading the passage itself. But I am convinced that what we have before us as we see this powerful genealogy of a man is not that we should look to this man, not that we should see Esau or Edom as it continues to remind us throughout this passage, and see how wonderfully rich he was and how wonderfully powerful this man was. And the blessings of the earth were clearly upon this man. But why would we have this passage here after having heard about Israel and how we have the 12 tribes that have been established and the hardships and the blessings that came in 35? It just seems like a juggernaut in chapter 36 of a powerful nation that has been established For those who have been with us, as we remember, as we walk through this passage, there's been a promise to the people that the younger, that is, that of Jacob, would be the one who inherits the promise, that he would receive the blessings, that he would receive the covenant of God, not the older, not that of Esau here. But why, when we get to this passage and get to these places, do we see this long, powerful lineage of people, possessions, power. I really think that if we get to this, we we see this story because it teaches us much about who God is. And some might actually come to this and see, oh, it's it's a story and it's a lesson about delayed gratification. What we see here is this picture that, oh, Israel, it's coming. There's more that is coming. If we think about this, perhaps it would be a bit like for those who are parents in this room or have uh, have a desire to be parents, if you were to tell your parent in the afternoon, or tell your child in the afternoon as they're hungry and saying over and over, they're hungry, they're hungry, they're hungry, I need to eat cookies. I want cookies. And you say, well, no, you can have a snack now, but I know what you ate for lunch. You had a big lunch, so if I give you a snack now, you don't get cookies after dinner. Well, often what happens is we look at that and we go, oh, the immediate gratification of the immediate that is in front of us We know children. We know their hearts. But let's say one of you covenant children say, you know what? I'm going to wait. I will wait for the blessings of God. I will wait, in this case, for the blessings of my parents and those cookies after dinner. And your parents say, oh, that's great. But then they rip open the bag and in front of you just smile and start eating cookie after cookie after cookie. What terrible parents. What mean parents. Wouldn't that be so mean if our parents were to do something like that to us? As we come to a passage like Genesis 36, I think our hearts can be prone to feel a bit that way. That we look to what has been promised and the blessings that are certain, but then we see this line of a powerful man who has wealth and has land. And it feels a little like, as a child, being told, all right, I'll wait. And we wait for that delayed gratification But then right in front of us, our parent is the one who is eating the cookies. I believe there's much more to this passage, and I think that there's much that we need to see about our God, for our God 
is not one who would do this to us. Our God is not one who is unkind. Our God is not one who would eat cookie after cookie in front of us as his children. So what is it that he has for us? What is it that God would have for us in this lesson? Now, I do believe there's actually an incredible reminder here that as we look to this passage, there's a temptation to believe that what is in front of your eyes, that of this earthly kingdom that Esau gets, is all there is. The temptation within our hearts to look to that which is immediate and in front of us, whether we're children or adults, and say, is our God really good? Is our God really doing what He said He would do? Is He really keeping the covenant? Has God really been faithful to Israel? Now, actually, in all of this, I I want to encourage you because I really believe that in the midst of all this, we are confident and certain of the reality that God is good. He is sovereign, and He loves His children. So my hope would be the day that you do not see the things of this world, you do not become afraid of them, you would not become anxious by these things, and to seek the things that are in front of your hand immediately in this place, whatever that be whether that be riches or whether we are looking to the things of our youth and desiring some physical good. But as we consider the things that are around us and we consider what it is that God is doing and has done for His people, my hope and prayer is that you today would be drawn to find peace and godly wisdom, joy and pleasure in Him. So there's a temptation as we see these three things. We're going to see three things about the Edomites, about Esau, that are really quite strong. We're going to see worldly wisdom. We're going to see worldly pleasures. And we're going to see worldly kingdoms. Now in this, there there is this reality that if we only read this passage here, there does not feel a lot of hope for the people of Israel because it's a long, powerful line of the older brother. And it's powerful. It's strong. So we must look at the big picture. We must look at the meta-narrative of who God is and His faithfulness to His people and not become distracted by what is only immediately in front of us. It's important. It is inspired. It is His Word. But I would encourage you as well to not be like Israel. Israel, as we know, again and again throughout the rest of the Bible, will grumble and they will become anxious and they will fear the powers that are at work all around them. And they will see things like Edom and wonder, why do they have land? And we are exiled. But in fact, my real hope and purpose is that you would not be afraid, that you would see that our God is absolutely sovereign over all things and orchestrating this world to allow for you to delight in Him you again to receive his godly wisdom, godly joy, and godly pleasure. Drawn away from the things that are in front of your eyes and looking towards him and him alone. We have to keep our eyes on our God in the midst of a passage like this or we will miss it. So to that end, as we have introduced our passage, I would like for you to look in the first eight verses. And you are going to see in these first eight verses worldly wisdom. You're going to see the worldly wisdom of Esau that I really think actually in the midst of this, 
there's an undertone and a reality that we must see in the midst of all that is going on here, that God is keeping his promises to Esau, and that also God is fulfilling prophecies to him as well. Now, some commentators actually spend time talking here that they talk about this, this reality here almost in covenantal language, and that is not what this is. It is not a covenant. We cannot call it a covenant. So if you hear people talking about a covenant, we do not see an oath or a bond in blood that is being administered here. So it is not that of a covenant that we are seeing, but we are absolutely seeing a picture of God being faithful. We're seeing that he is sovereign over things and keeping his promises here in these first few verses. But we're also seeing that he is truly fulfilling prophecy. Now if you look with this, you're going to see actually here in verse 7 something really powerful. Because what are we going to see about Esau here? We're going to see in verse 7 that the possessions were too great for them to dwell together. So he's rich. He has worldly pleasure. He is looking to the things that are here. And actually what we are seeing is a promise fulfilled of that of Genesis 27-39. So as we've been in Genesis for a while, we can sometimes forget about what it is that actually was stated for us in prior places. So I'm going to turn there for us. Because what we are going to see is that reminder of what it was that Isaac, his father, said to him and blessed him. Because he gave him a blessing after his brother had stolen his own blessing. So Genesis 27, 39 says this, Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, that is to Esau, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Now, if we get to this, and we look at this, and we start wondering, okay, well, it sounds like he's going to be away from these things. We're going to see that he is actually away from the things of God. We're not going to see provisions of earth. I actually think, as, we, as I read through the Hebrew, and I read through this multiple times here, that it is, behold, from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. Actually, some commentators and actually some translations do put it that way. It's a little different than our ESV puts it. So we remember that in the original, it absolutely was inspired, and God breathed out his word. So there are things that are in here that we might potentially miss. But we say, away, or toward the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. There's going to be provision. We're going to see actually some of the things of God that are actually here and clear for him. Now, yes, it could be translated exactly as the way that the ESV has translated it for us. But I think that as we see that the promise is that there is going to be earthly blessings for him. There's going to be earthly realities. And also there is this reality that is a fulfillment of a prophecy. Now Genesis 25 actually talked about that there's this reality of two nations. There's a nation of the older brother who's going to serve the younger. That of Esau will serve Jacob. So there's a prophecy that is fulfilled actually here as well, that we must see this and that we must look to this and see oh, God is actually fulfilling the things that he has promised his people that he's going to do. That we're not looking to the worldly wisdom and the things that are actually unfolding here in this passage before us and saying, oh, maybe we should become like Esau. Far from it. Actually, as we walk through these verses, these first eight verses, there is no mention of Esau actually calling out to God or with God. He is operating from a place, as we see this, that he goes in verse 8 and settles in the hill country of Seir by his strength. By his hand. It is not that he is walking these things out under any kind of the protection or the reality of believing that God is doing something in his life. He's seeking his own. He's seeking his own wisdom. And as we walk through this, and we would see that there is a provision that actually comes about for him. 
land. Incredibly long lines of people. Name after name that are tied to him. He is powerful. So as we walk through this as well, there might be a temptation to look to this and see the fatness of this earth and say, hmm, maybe I should turn towards the earthly wisdom. Maybe I should turn towards the things of what is actually in front of my hand. And what it actually we see here, though, is no. We're not to look to Esau. We're look to, looking to God, how he is making decisions. He is actually moving this man in his livestock. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, even details that looks like and has, that there is a freedom of the will underneath God's sovereignty, that God is fully working in his sovereign will in this family. That even the decisions that look like God was not exalted, he did not pray, and now there is blessing. That is that the wisdom that should be pursued? Far from it. No, we should absolutely never do this. We actually see that in this, that there is a turn after this, to the unfolding of Jacob's line. The rest of Scriptures walks out that of Israel and that of what it is of looking for the Savior from Christ, from Genesis 3, all the way on of this need for a second Adam to come, of this need for a, a Messiah to save the people. There's a promise that it is done. There's a promise from Genesis 3 that it, that it is certain. It's not that we have to look to it one day, that in the midst of all of these things, there is a very real reality of how God is unfolding these things and what he is doing. So now before I move on from my first point, I believe I need to draw a little bit of attention to, to some sub-points and some things that are really smoke screens that a lot of men will bring about. When I was a younger man, I wrestled with this passage particularly a lot. And there were some people who seemed wise in my own world and in my own life that spoke to some of the, the, the textual difficulties here of these first eight verses. Because if you read through the name of the lineage of what is actually going on here, it does not seem to match what happened just a couple of chapters earlier when he left that of Canaan, when he left and had his wives. When he's leaving now, we're talking about different people who are here, different family names than when we see Jacob and, or when we see Esau and his wives from earlier. Now, there's a bunch of different ways that we can actually look at this. And I think that one way is to look at there are slight transliterations of names because there are similarities with these names between the two. That's one way that some commentators would say how they deal with it. That there's a little bit of, uh, of copyist errors and things that are happening. Now, his word in the original language is absolutely true. It absolutely can be trusted. Could it be that that of what we see in places like Hebrews, that he is actually unfaithful to his one spouse? and that he continues to build more and more of a kingdom and have additional people that are added and have additional names that are coming, certainly that could be a possibility as well. Could be that he's moved, that there is the changing of names, that as they're moving from one place to another, that the names take on that of the region of where it is that they're moving. All of these are possibilities. So if we walk through this, we say, is there some mystery here? Yes. Does this mean that his word is not inerrant or inspired or authoritative? Absolutely not. That would be malarkey. That would be confusing at best to go to such an extreme jump to say, hey, here are some possible solutions that we have. For us to say, oh, this is not an inspired word of God over these couple of verses. I would encourage you to not look at this text in any kind of that way. That is not the point of this text, but I need to draw attention to that because many evangelical pastors and commentators stray away from some of these arguments. It is God's word, though, for his people. There is no confusion here in God's mind. He has given it for us to know more about Him, to know more about His people. And is there mystery? Is there difficulty? Yes. 
but it does not change the unchangeable nature of who our God is. We are to learn to trust Him in those mysterious places and in those places that our own hearts can begin to drift and to doubt. So to that being said, I, I want to now move back towards our text and away from some of the subpoints and things of man, but I want to talk to the second thing that we see of that of worldly pleasures of verses 9 through 30. We've seen that there's worldly wisdom of that of, hey, should I just leave my brother? Should I leave that of Canaan and go to the places that are wealthy? Should I go to Seir? We actually know a little bit more about this land and we think about what this, this country is. This is a very rich land. Seir is a place that the people actually, it's hill country and it's a trade route. So a little bit of what we saw last week with Shechem and that of Jacob going to this place and saying, I'm stopping just short and a good trade route we're now seeing his brother stopping in a good trade route. But actually, not just a good trade route. It's a good trade route with hills and mountains. This is rich land. This is going to protect them. We would not go out and, and set up trade route and be people who are trading in a place that is, is doing it out of my basement. No, we'd go to the rich places. We'd go to the places where the land is actually quite good. But he does it by his strength. And actually, as we saw Last week, Jacob repented of when it was that he went to Shechem, that he actually finished the journey and went to Bethel. He went to his father's home. We actually see the opposite happening with the older brother. He left his father's home and he pursued worldly wisdom and now worldly pleasures. He gets wealth. Boy, he is receiving some of the powerful promises that were going to be given to him. Now, if we see this, we look through these passages here and we can see place after place that he receives land, talks about his cattle, talks about his family. He's getting what he wants, though. He is not getting the very thing of what it is that he needs. We're seeing on display many of the fruits of Esau's heart as it is that he becomes Edom. We're seeing what it is as he walks into this place that he's pursuing things by his own strength. He's crafty. We already knew that. He was a hunter and he went out, he sold his birthright to his brother. He sold the blessing to his brother. He despised the blessing and the things of God that his brother prized, that his brother cherished, at least now. Early on, when we see that he stole the blessing, when we saw Jacob stole the blessing, we believe that he was absolutely seeking the things of this earth from his brother. But as we saw, he went for 20 years. He sojourned uh, with his father-in-law. He had a difficult 20 years, but the Lord blessed him. He's now returned. He's come to these places. But as Jacob has been blessed, and as he now has his 12 children, or his 12, uh, 12 sons that have been born, there's a temptation as we look at this and see what is unfolding with the lineage of his brother to go, oh, maybe I should actually look and pursue some of the wealth that was there. Pursue some of these things. And actually, we see more and more of the heart of Esau in this, because actually, as we walk through these names, as we walk through this passage, a commentator drew my attention to this, and then I tried to kind of look at some of the meaning of some of the names. I wasn't able to walk through all 40 or so names, each individual one. But each of these names here that we see have human significance, with maybe one or two exceptions. And it's talking about things like turtle, and it's talking about things that are earthly, so this man is pursuing all of the things. His own family, line after line, person after person, 
are naming their children after earthly things. They're naming and pursuing the things of this earth. They're not pursuing the things of God. They're making decisions in such a way that they're pursuing the very thing that is really quite dangerous for their heart to pursue. But it looks good. It feels good. There's an immediate provision. There's an immediate family line that continues to unfold here. Now, I think it's really important as we walk through this and as we see this in our second point that there is this danger to look to that earthly. But that is not at all what God is telling us to do. God is actually reminding His people to look to His covenantal faithful promises, not of this immediate passage, because in this verse in itself or in this chapter, it does look like the older brother is getting everything. The land, the family. And think about Jacob, how he struggled to build his generations. To get to the twelve, he didn't, ha- he didn't take one wife. He took two and two servants. So there were, there were four people that built the line of Israel. That we, we cannot forget that, but we look at this and we do see that there are multiple names here and he continues to take multiple wives for Esau as well. But this lineage is strong and powerful. And as Alan Ross is, is the commentator who spoke to this and these 40 names, he's just pursuing only the things that are here. And it's actually the opposite of what I actually think we see with the last name of Jacob that I, I didn't spend much time, but Benjamin... Uh, son of my right hand, or son of my fortune or happiness. Could be another way that that's translated. When we see that back in Genesis 35, verses 36, of that of just earthly things. The son of my right hand, son of my blessing, son of the things, son of, the things of what God is giving to me and to my people after me. There is a very real difference of what is going on. I actually think within chapter 36, and I, I, I tread here a little bit carefully, but in 36, there is certainly a lot of what we see today with personal peace and affluence, as Francis Schaeffer would say, in America. That as we see this picture of people who are pursuing the wealth and the things of this earth and the things that are in front of their eyes, in many ways, it's reflective of the American heart. And what America continues to pursue is that of the gift, that of good things. I'm not saying it's bad to have a house. I'm thankful that every single one of us have a house in this room. Or to pursue the things that provide for us or the jobs that are in front of us or to to go out and if we are young to, to get new baseballs or gloves or or new sporting equipment or new toys. But if we value those things above the real true giver of all things, as we already talked about the reality of who God is as the owner of all things, if we're missing the giver of the gift and actually pursuing just the gifts themselves, at times, God allows for this. But it's not so that His people would love those things and just experience the personal peace of this day in such a way that we saw here in Genesis 36. We're not to pursue this personal peace. We're still to pursue the things of God. And actually pursuing the things of God are hard. And that is so much of what this passage is pointing out to us as well, that the worldly pleasures and the things are very fleeting. There might be a temptation to look to the things and say, hmm, I can gain much, I can get much. And look to all of the material significance and rest in the peace that they provide. For there is peace that comes, temporary peace. Because what happens for Esau and the Edomites? They had land. They had power. 
They had possessions. In earthly terms, this is kind of a bit of the lifestyles of the famous that, man, they've made it. Look what is good in front of their eyes. And look at Pidley brother number two. What it is that they're receiving? Actually, as this was, it was given to the people of God, as this was written by Moses and given to the people, the people had likely already left that of the exile of Egypt. But they were likely still wandering. When this was probably written, the people did not have a land. They did not have the physical provisions of what it is that their heart desired and wanted. So they might be prone even to look here at this and say, hmm, oh man, I want that worldly wisdom. I want that worldly pleasure. But in this, there is a call, actually, as we looked at, and I read from 37.1, that it flips back to Jacob, because that is where the story must go. The people must see that God is on display and working in such a way that He is making His name great. That He is a covenant-keeping God to His people, but it is seldom in the way that we expect. It's not in the personal piece of affluence of, of Schaefer. It's not in the, the, the personal piece and, and, and provision preached in many pulpits across America as well that we are to have personal prosperity. He may give it, but we are to look to the giver of the gift. We look to the source of all life. Look to our God in places like this, that we would not be humans that are tempted to despair when we see these worldly pleasures and grumble and complain, as Israel does, and as we do as well. But before I finish, I need for us to look in verses 31 through 43. There's something really, really powerful. Because as Israel does not have, in their mind, earthly kings at this point. Now again, progressive scholars will argue as to when this was written, but I am confident and I stand before you saying that Moses absolutely wrote Genesis. If you want to talk about that later, let's happily talk about that. He did write this for us. But as we walk through this passage and we see what is going on, there's this long line of kings. There's this reality in verses 31 through 39 of the kings of Edom. And first, I think there's two things that we need to see as well. Because this list of kings is not a linear relationship of what we would traditionally think of of a monarchy. That it's not just father passes it down to his son or daughter, passes it down to their son or daughter. No, there's a lot of people that will talk about this and speculate about this, that there's this reality that yes, the people of Esau and Edom own this land, but the way that it transferred likely had a lot of hostility. It was certainly more political. There were probably elections and things of that nature. That there was financial and personal motivation of becoming a king or becoming a chief, as we see in some of these verses here. So as we walk through that, that should not be lost because actually there was a lot of the transfer of power in a way that it was not the, the father giving it to the son, giving it to the next generation. That should not be lost on us as well, because we look at this and we see there's a temptation in, in this to see the powerful kingdoms of man at work, the powerful unfolding of these people over and over again. That as Israel looks at this and they go, we don't have a king. That there's a temptation to despair and to look at this and say, hmm, well, maybe we should have one. But second, I need for you all to remember, because actually as, as where we stand, we have the benefit of looking at all of Scriptures, that the canon is closed and that God has revealed and showed to us in His Word what it is that we are to know and to believe about Him. But we also see that there are places like Obadiah, and there's a couple of places in Isaiah that speak about the Edomites. They're going to be obliterated. 
They're going to be totally wiped out. There's a prophecy and a fulfillment of what it is of that of the of prophets who would come after the writings of this and speaking about the Edomites and speaking to really the fulfillment of what would happen of the older son not receiving all of the provisions and things that it looks like. Because what, what happens here is a wiping out and, 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 and a taking of the people. And I guess there's a spot in Amos where it talks about there's probably a few and a remnant that, that remained of the Edomites. I believe that those are likely those who Christ has, has saved. That there are calling out of every tribe, tongue, and nation those whom God is saving. So even out of the Edomites, it is likely that he has saved a very small remnant. There's a very small group of people that come out of here. But otherwise, they're obliterated. So we look at this and we see within this text, though, a desire for kings and kingdoms and powers that be. And Israel, as we do know, walks out later in the narratives. We look in places like 1 Samuel, one of my favorite books, we're reminded they get kings. But what happens in 1 Samuel when they get their kings? Their women and men have to serve in armies, have to serve as bakers, they have to pay taxes. Ooh, all the things that come with earthly kingdoms that their hearts are desiring and walking towards, those come with as well. But as we look at this and we see this line of kings, we should not look to what it is of Israel of coming kings. We need to remember what it is that Israel already has. They have a king. That of the promised Messiah of Genesis 3 is here on display. That the people of God have their king already. It's not that they're waiting for God to, to change the plan or to do something different in a different epoch or dispensation. There's a promise that God is a covenant-keeping God and that from Genesis 3, the plan is certain. The ways of God are certain. That He is fulfilling this line in such a way that yes, they do not see their king on display fully. The benefits of God's spiritual kingdom are not fully on display for them and they're not fully on display for our hearts as well today. And that we do not stand with unveiled faces as the Scriptures say. We stand as those who look through glasses dimly. and We stand as those who, who know that Christ has come. That there is a Redeemer and King who was promised in Genesis 3, that was promised here in Genesis 36, that has now come in the Gospel accounts and witnesses. And He's coming again. As we look to this and we think about our temptation and desire for human kings, as we look at Israel's desire for human kings, are they forgetting the work of the king? that is King Jesus, that they were waiting for, as they were becoming anxious and looking at this passage and thinking about the powers and the wars and those that are around, were they getting overwhelmed? You betcha. We see that all over, that they look overwhelmed again and again. And about every you know, a few years, they will repent and God will call them back again. And then they will go wayward again. And then he calls them back again. This happens, this continual cycle all over. But we need to as well remember that there is this reality of a true kingdom that is so much better than any of the kingdoms that we see on display here of Edom. Any of the kingdoms that are surrounding us here in 2023 as well. His kingdom has been inaugurated by his son, 
Christ has done this work. The promise is that there will be no suffering. The promise is that we will spend eternity with our God. The promise is we will have new bodies that are incorruptible, that do not deal with the brokenness and the suffering and the pain that we see in front of our eyes. As we struggle in the day-to-day and we feel the physical suffering of, of our own bodies, as we look and say, I don't love my president or I love my president, and we put our allegiance in those places or we put our allegiance in, in, in political powers that exist around this world and hope and pray that there will be something political that comes, we're looking to the wrong king. We're looking to the very thing that I believe Genesis 36 is warning us to not look to. But here's the glorious reality. His kingdom is here. It is certain. It's not just that he's going to come and over, overcome and, and conquer. That is very real, that he is, he is going to be returning, as his word tells us. But when we hear about wars and rumors of wars, and when we feel that pit in our own stomach of, of the atrocities of things that have happened in these last couple of weeks, remember, our hope is an eternity. And it has been perfectly secured by our God. It is not anything that we bring or do to the table to secure these things. So as we get to passages like this, we do not have to wonder what will become of the people of God or run to those dark corners of our heart and wonder, will it really work out the way that He, in His promise, in His covenantal faithfulness, will work out? We have certainty that it will work out the way that He says that it will. We have hope that it will work out the way that he says that it will. We do not look to worldly wisdom or pleasures or kingdoms. But again, we look to godly wisdom and godly pleasures and godly kingdoms. The kingdom of our God is here. So our answer to our question is, where and how do we need to repent of the things of our heart? We go to Christ. This is contrary to our own nature and contrary to the very sin that creeps within each and every one of us. As we live this side of Eden, outside of the garden, we long to be back in. We want to be back in. But in the meantime of not being in this spot, that we wait for that already but not yet, as we sit in this place, we remember like the original audience that we are in this place where it has been finished. And actually we know that the bride has come. That the bridegroom has come for his bride. That he's faithful to his bride. His promises are for you as his children. When you despair, when things are hard, there's an invitation here to repent, to turn away from your heart and say, Lord, I am looking to the things and they're making me sick and uncomfortable. Help me to see your peace. Help me to see your ways. To see that the world's wisdoms, pleasure, and kingdoms have no ability to truly overwhelm those who are in Christ. The gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against our king, for he is king. And he paid with real blood, rose again, conquering death for you and me who by faith believe. That is what we rejoice in in passages like this. Please pray with me.
our Lord and our God, as we finish our time in this passage, as we remember who you are and what you have done, we just pray and ask that we, your people, would be reminded of your covenantal faithfulness. That in the places of our heart that are hard and dark, would we look at passages like this and not be discouraged or just skip over them, but see that there is a triumphant king. He is reigning on his throne now. Christ, you are doing that. So we pray and ask for all the words that we heard this morning, that if they are not in accord with anything that you would have for us, that you would let them float by. But if there are things or places that you are growing us and wanting us to become more like you, would you convict us and make us more like you? We love you, God, and we pray this all in the strong and perfect name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. If you would, would you please stand with me, and by way of response, we will together as God's people sing our hymn 243, Praise the Savior, now and ever. be seated. It's indeed my joy and privilege to invite you now to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And being his table, we should look to him and his word and how it is that we should come. For he tells us that we should examine ourselves and see that if in these elements, are they pointing us to the cross in our own hearts? Are they reminding us that the work is finished, that Christ has overcome, that he has done the very things that Israel struggled to see, that our own hearts struggled to see as well. For in this bread, it represents his body that is broken for us. And in this cup, it represents his blood. As we come to this meal and think of these things, we must remember his work, what it is that he has done, and consider his work on our behalf. For actually not doing so. Scripture warns us to not do so and actually to not come doing something outwardly that is not representative of our heart's inward reality. It actually drinks us into a very dangerous place with God, into his very wrath, as, as 1 Corinthians 11 would have us know. So the encouragement, though, here is even hearing those words consider that he has set the table, that he invites you to come, that he might be drawing you to himself even now. Whether this be your whole life that you've walked with him or the very first day, 
that you have walked with him. There's an invitation that if you believe that Jesus lived and died for you, rose again from the dead for your sins, this is for you. This meal is truly for you. We must look to his word and how it is that he tells us that we should come to this meal. Because as our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same fashion after dinner, he took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant that is shed for the remission of the sins of many. The promise we have is that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death and we are to do so until he comes again. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we we thank you that there is an invitation to come, not by our own work, not by the, the fear within our own heart, but trusting that the finished work has been done and applied and given to us by you. We ask that you would set apart these common elements, that you would use them for their sacred and, and use them in such a way that it, you would spiritually feed your people.